Hello, and welcome to Can Architecture Fix This? A podcast where we explore challenging design questions through stories and conversations with expert guests. I'm your host, Rebecca Sheberg, coming to you from White Architecture Studio in Oslo, Norway. If you're a new listener, here's a quick recap. About two years ago, our studio gathered a number of articles from colleagues and outside collaborators featuring stories about designing where water is a primary concern. We published those stories in a book anthology entitled Out of the Blue. Over the next episodes, we're checking back in with some of those contributing authors of the book to hear their stories firsthand and see if anything has developed over the past two or so years. This week, we're asking, can architecture fix the melting permafrost? We've invited William Gagnon, who is a green building engineer at the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation in Innovation and Climate. William's article tells the story about how communities in the Northern Territories of Canada are dealing with both technical and psychological challenges as glaciers in the territory melt, causing rivers to run backwards, and as foundations of people's homes subside due to the melting permafrost. We're glad we can bring you this story. Welcome, William. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Before we get into the article you wrote about Out of the Blue, I wonder if you can introduce yourself a little bit and just tell people how you ended up in Yellowknife and what it's like to live in the Northwest Territories in Canada. Sure. So I ended up here on a whim. Like I I thought I was going to be here for four months on a work contract and I knew nothing about the Canadian Arctic or subarctic. And then I moved here for a job with an environmental nonprofit. They were wanting, <clears throat> wanting to retrofit their office space into like green building. So mm-hmm. I was kind of like the great person to do that because I'm a building engineer, also really interested in climate. And it's when I moved here that I really started seeing uh, and feeling and living the impacts of the climate crisis really directly. Mm-hmm. So in Canada South, where I'm from, so I'm from Montreal, which is about the same latitude as I want to say, like, you know, continental Europe. Um, whereas where I live right now is at the same uh, latitude as Kiruna, which is my only, sorry, Nordic yeah. reference. I'm not yeah. sure there's a, a Norwegian reference for that. Um, and of course, we see more of the impacts of the climate crisis here in the north. So that really just accelerated my work on this. So a couple of years ago, you wrote an article entitled Water Changing Course When Rivers Flow Backwards. And just that title is enough to inspire fear and awe because, I mean, I can't imagine rivers running backwards and what that would mean for people on the ground or for people up and down the rivers and the things in the rivers. So um, I just wonder if you can share the stories you wrote about in this article and how you noticed how the community was marking the change in their environments. Yeah, so I think that for such big changes, it's sometimes hard for people to notice them or to, you know, recognize them without really living in in denial. So I remember when I visited the Kashkawash Glacier in Yukon Territory. So that's quite, it's about a thousand kilometer west as the crow flies from from Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. And I was there for, for a work thing. And then I just decided, you know, to poke around and ask people in the community what's what's going on. And that's when I learned about that glacier. And so 
because of um, uh, warming temperatures, the, major, the glacier has been melting faster. And mm -hmm. the faster it melted, um, the, because of the topography, how it, it was arranged, like the more it melted, the more it started changing course. And at some point, it was just like a, a complete uh, flip. Mm. And so the water, instead of flowing north, flows south. And that has so much impacts, right? It has impacts on wildlife, on coastal erosion, on harvesting. Mm -hmm. um, and in Yukon Territory, there's, there's a majority of indigenous folks who live there and rely on wildlife harvesting or berry picking for, you know, for, for sustenance, for, mm -hmm. for food. And so obviously that has a tremendous impact. And, you know, these changes have never been observed for as long as these communities have been living there for literally 6,000 years or more. Oh, wow. And so when elders in these communities are telling stories about that, there is a lot of solastalgia. So solastalgia is um, the feeling of being homesick, but when you're still at home because of rapid environmental changes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think... You know, the first step into living these stories is just to to take it in and recognize how it makes us feel. Yeah. Um, because it's quite, you know, it's quite a big move. Yeah. And you also wrote about um, some cases where the permafrost was melting and people had to retrofit their homes. Yeah, so this is happening obviously just more and more and will keep happening. Um even if we were to stop greenhouse gas emissions today mm -hmm. uh, because of baked in uh, or locked in carbon, carbon emissions in the atmosphere. So where I live in a territory where I live, um, it's called Northwest Territories. It's as big, I was Googling it. It's as big as Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark combined. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a pretty big chunk of land. Um, and we have a lot of areas of permanent uh, permafrost, some some uh, discontinuous permafrost areas. Um, my friend Courtney, for example, her house is on, uh, on a hill and that hill is a permafrost hill and the foundation sits on permafrost. Mm -hmm. But it's be because of warming temperatures, then the permafrost has started melting. So the foundations is shifting and cracking. So you can see that some of the walls have, you know, these little, um, these little rulers that are, you know, just um, screwed into the, the gypsum board yeah. to measure the, um, so, yeah, the house is shifting and cracking. They've invested $150,000, so about 70,000 euros in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's still moving. That's, um, that's one thing. Uh, roads are a big thing, obviously, because when you build a road, so, you know, with asphalt and gravel on permafrost, mm -hmm. then it starts melting and buckling. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, obviously it creates more, more, um, less, less stable road conditions. And um, it makes it harder to ship food and fuel to mm -hmm. communities, airstrips. Airstrips also are really being affected. Uh, parking lots here in Yellowknife, the parking lots are like, whoa, whoa, because um, we have some thermosiphons uh, at mm -hmm. the end, which is basically a way to take the heat from underneath the, it gets really technical, but mm -hmm. to you know manage permafrost, but still that is not um, perfect. So. Yeah, we're like infrastructure is really affected here in the Northwest Territories mm. and it just will continue to do so. So we're looking actively looking at solutions and climate adaptation is something we talk about way more than mm. climate mitigation. 
because mm -hmm. it's just way more urgent, right? Right. And by, by climate adaptation, you mean not really trying to fix it, but learning how to live with our new reality because there's no going back. Well, a lot of us are really trying to fix it. So I just, yes. I don't want to like, yes. you know, um, people are really concerned and, mm. you know, there's active efforts to decarbonize our grid and the way we operate. It is hard when, you know, everybody's super remote, we mm -hmm. don't have roads, so everybody flies everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we don't have sun in the winter, so we're really dependent on diesel electricity production. Yeah. Like we are still interested in what Avenor is doing. For example, when I was in Oslo, I flew an electric plane with Avenor, which was so exciting. Yeah. Uh, so we're still thinking about that. But like climate adaptation is just so more, much more prevalent, right? Because we had floods. So here in Yellowknife, the, the um, Great Slave Lake, uh, which is one of the biggest freshwater reserves in the world, um, the level has gone up by, I think it's 50 centimeters just last year. Whoa. So, you know, like at, at the government dock where we go and park our canoes, usually we would step down into the lake. Yeah. But now the whole parking lot is flooded. Oh, and there's goodness. houses there that had to put like sandbags. And it seems that the water level has not receded this year. I mean, it's still frozen in mm -hmm. this. And we'll mm -hmm. see when the um, um, lake uh, thaws in, in June. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's just so much more prevalent, so much more urgent and immediate, right? So adaptation yeah. is just front of mind. Yeah. Um, my first question about your article picks up right at the end. When you wrote the sentence, I want to quote it. Putting a human face on climate change is key to moving in the right direction, and it has an impact on our water consumption, our mental health, and our very heart at home. So can you elaborate on what you mean by that and why it's so important to put a human face on these issues? So funny because I wrote that, what, in 2019? Yeah, early. My yeah. thinking is a bit different. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think it's still the same. So um, recently, I've done a lot of work with uh, Dr. Courtney Howard. She's an eMERGE doc. Um, she's worked with Médecins Sans Frontières and she, um, she's a big climate activist. So in Canada, she's the person who can talk about climate and health. Mm -hmm. um, she's got a great TED talk. Um, and <clears throat> what we've noticed is that um, people react more strongly to health impacts um, than to um, saving money, for example. So yeah. if we tell them, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna change the diesel generator so that we can save money and replace that with solar panels. Mm -hmm. It doesn't speak as much as if we say, um, in 2014 in Yellowknife, there was twice as many uh, admissions to the emergency room for asthma crises mm -hmm. because of our big wildfire event than the year prior. So right. health impacts speak way more to people than money. Mm -hmm. And, and, and money speaks more than actually just climate or you know, caring for climate. So I think it's about framing this as yeah, a human face or mm -hmm. really about the impact that that has on, on humans because we know that the climate impacts will um, take more lives than COVID has taken so far. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to, yeah, I think shifting that narrative is really important. Mm -hmm. And the last time we spoke, I remember you said that um, people trust information much more when it comes from, for example, a doctor than if it comes from a businessman or a politician, they just trust that information more. And so it really matters who the messenger is for this information. 100%, which yeah. 
is why we need to do better collaboration. And you know, you guys are, are really good at this. The Norwegians, the Swedes, the the Finns. I was listening to a Monocle podcast just a couple of days ago, where it's just like basically you can't do any project if if you don't have like multi Nordic collaboration. And I was like, yes, this is yeah. how we do it. So yeah, the um, I can't remember who did this study, but basically, I think top trusted messenger is nurses and then it's doctors mm. and then I think third is like hairdressers so like <laughs> people who care for people are actually yeah. trusted yeah. more than politician or businessmen so mm. I think we need to yeah if if you know if the medical or like health message uh is better received then let's just let's just team up mm. and that that's how we we can make change but yeah. doctors are not used to challenging the status quo or jumping into politics mm. um they're used to you know um pubmed or like peer-reviewed articles science and it's it's black and white for them so uh it's it can be frightening for you know scientists who are used to being super uh technical to jump into that arena but it's mm -hmm. i think it's important that we collaborate absolutely collaboration is super important um at the time you wrote the article, like we said, it was early 2019, and it seemed like you were in a place where you were still mapping the challenges that you were seeing in the north, in Yellowknife and around. And since that time, I know that you took a little tour around the Nordic countries, around Europe, trying to find what you called cool things, just people doing cool things, um, and to see if there were solutions out there that might be relevant in a place like Yellowknife. Where are you in that process? So yeah, I think that five week trip in the Nordic was really, really defining for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember jumping into it being, it's actually my, my, my psychologist who kind of pushed me towards taking a break mm -hmm. and finding some inspiration. So that's how I kind of, you know, ended up in Oslo and, um, and a lot of the ideas that I saw in, well, in Norway, Sweden, Finland, it, I'm actually implementing right now. So I started a master's degree on a technology I visited in Tampere. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the first pyrogenic carbon capture and storage plant. Um, yeah. There's also the Stockholm Biochar project, which is quite similar. So I'm doing a master's degree on that. Okay. But also recently I've been reading more about the government, the Northwest Territories strategy for transportation. And right now pretty much everything is, is flown in mm -hmm. except when there's an ice road that can be done or sometimes it's barged by from the high Arctic in the summer. Okay. But basically, all the rest is, is uh, air, tra air travel. And so they're wanting to build some all weather roads um, mm. in a lot of places to, you know, for for both human and goods traffic. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I visited with Avinor, um, they were sharing that, you know, that you have a lot of fjords in Norway, and it's really hard to build uh, highways because mm -hmm. you need to blast so much. So they, their plan is just to rely on electric aviation. Okay. Um, which, which makes sense. I think it's a really like, you know, long-term planning. And so, yeah, a lot of the ideas that I found in the Nordics, you know, I still think about today. Mm, yeah. Um, have you started to notice how things might be transitioning from research into action in your environment? Um, yes, that's the piece I'm struggling with. <laughs> uh -huh. Yes, it's always slower, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So I work in government right now, and it's it requires so many levels of, of approval, mm. and um, 
it's that's the piece that I'm I'm really struggling with. Uh, mm. What we know is that we need to we need to jump from making you know plans for the next six months and securing a plan to actually just like do step one, yeah. jump into it, see how it goes, and then mm. from this iterate. Because if we if we want to have the whole picture, we will never get there, especially with the speed at which climate impacts are coming at us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not something government is comfortable um, doing. I've been mm -hmm. reading a lot about like, what's the innovation strategy for uh, the Buverket in Sweden? Or like, yeah. how are, you know, governments in Finland and Norway innovating or like, and, you know, we still have to fill our tax returns here in Canada. And I know <laughs> that I was with the ambassador in, in Oslo and he was like, yeah, my wife just receives a text and she answers, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> so like, that's the level of like catching up we have to do in Canada. Yeah, yeah. When I read your article and when we speak about such big things like melting permafrost and melting glaciers and rivers running backwards, I get this overwhelming anxiety about how quickly things are changing and it's difficult to know where to start to fix. I mean, you got to start somewhere, but where, um, I know that you have spent some time thinking and speaking about echo anxiety. So I wondered if you had any advice for people who might be feeling really anxious like this and may need some inspiration for what they can do when they feel powerless against these changes. Mm -hmm. Totally. And thanks for asking, because I think it's really important to, to recognize how we feel about climate. Mm. Um, whereas it, in, you know, I think in the last three years, it was mostly about eco-anxiety, I think probably popularized by uh, Greta. Um, yeah. We're also talking more and more about eco-grief, eco-anger, mm -hmm. um, eco-guilt, solastalgia. Um, and it's important to recognize that everybody's reaction is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So Rebecca, you might be eco-anxious, I might be eco-angry, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that your feelings are invalid or my feelings are invalid. Mm -hmm. And the way you deal with your feelings is might be different also from the way I deal with, with mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I've hosted quite a bit of workshops on that um, because I really like seeing how, how people react, but also how they shift from anxiety to action. Even if it's like, Oh, like I got, I got, I organized a dinner with my friends and we talked about this cool solar project we want to put together. It's, it feels like just like having a social time, but it's yeah. actually like climate action in a way because we were talking about it. So talking about it actually just makes people feel better too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, action alleviates anxiety. So yeah. climate action alleviates eco-anxiety as well. Right. Yeah. I know um, it's something, you know, in, in just, other kinds of therapy. That's what we have to do is we have to recognize what it is that we're not letting ourselves feel in order for us to find a way to get over it and not just get over it, but to work through that and to find a way forward that's more positive for our well-being. Um, we have one last question, and this is the way we're ending all the interviews in this series. The name of the podcast is Can Architecture Fix This? Do you think that architecture can fix the enormous challenges of things like melting from permafrost, melting glaciers, and all of the challenges that come with that? Or is architecture um, too narrow of a focus? And if so, how would you reframe it? Wow, that's a very good question. 
So um, I will answer yes. Yes, and mm -hmm. not yes, but I'll say yes, and mm -hmm. so I um, so I wanted to be an architect growing up. I wanted to be an architect first. I wanted to be a pilot and then I settled on becoming an architect. But then I went to I didn't speak English when I started college. I was born in Montreal, so I was born French. I didn't really speak English when I started college. Mm -hmm. And which means that for the first two years in college, I had really bad grades. <laughs> <laughs> and then I come to apply to university. Right. I applied to a few architecture programs and I wasn't selected except for one, mm -hmm. but I thought they would send me like, they would call me or send me a letter or an email saying, Hey, you've been accepted, mm -hmm. but you had to log in the portal online with a password that you never remembered right. to see if you were actually accepted. So it's only three years later, and I had already started the, the, the engineering degree that I logged back in that university uh, portal. Uh -huh. And I saw that I was accepted in architecture. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyways, I'll have to say, like, I think architecture has a potential to inspire a lot of people. Mm. And it's it was my first uh, um, touch point into like big planning, big thinking. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we see these renderings, like mm -hmm. and they speak so much, you know, when I saw the, um, the Schellefteau Kulturhuset that White has been, you know, it's a gorgeous mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. And although it's a glass building, you know, it's also a, a, um, a wood building and that yeah. has the potential to sequester a lot of carbon. So I don't think that, I don't think architects should inflate their heads by thinking that, oh, my project will save the world. But collectively, I think they have the potential to well, first of all, like make people feel better, uh, feel inspired, uh, reduce um, uh, health uh, impacts, make mm -hmm. people feel more mentally healthy as well. When you're in a nice building surrounded mm -hmm. with wood, there is so much evidence that that actually reduces uh, your stress levels. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, I think it's architects who set the vision for where we want to go, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, as much as I as I wish that engineers would set the vision for where we want to go, they usually tend to be more like mm, 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 technical and like you can't do this, you know. Yeah, but you're not. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm kind of like yeah, you know, not a normal engineer. So yeah, I think that um, yeah, I think architecture can can save the world for sure. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> you're just throwing it right back on us designers and saying you can do it if you try oh sorry i'm not saying i'm not saying it's on you i <laughs> no i yeah, but, promise also to do my part yeah 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 no we we all have to we all have to do our part we're not going to get yeah. anything fixed if we try to work in silos so yeah no I, but and also i think that we can't we can't blame people for not doing their parts like yeah. i don't think blame or guilt or shame works it's um i think it's more about like calling out but immediately calling in you know mm -hmm. like hey we can't do that but actually you know if we work together we we, we can we can do something better so. yeah yeah oh that's great william gagnon thank you so much for being here it is always a pleasure to speak with you rebecca it's it is my pleasure because it really brings my energy up to you know speak with you know i think about the Nordics all the time. So yeah. it's, um, it's great to get some inspiration from you. Well, we think about you and the North of Canada all the time too. So <laughs> feeling is mutual. <laughs> That's the story this week. Thank you all for listening. You can follow William at williamgagnon.ca and on both Twitter and Instagram under the handle wgagnon. 
You can also read more articles from William on medium.com under the handle at gagnon.will. Can Architecture Fix This is produced by White Architected in Oslo. Ingrid Klevan is our production manager. She also composes our music. Sophia Benson is our managing director. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have a minute, please give us a rating. That helps others find us. You can find us on Instagram under the handle White Architecture Oslo or visit our website at www.whitearchitecture.com. Join us next time when we speak with Joran van Schaik and Peter Ham to hear a story about a pilot floating home in the Philippines and ask the question, can architecture fix living in tropical floodplains? I'm Rebecca Sheberg, and this was Can Architecture Fix This from White Architecture.